You're listening to Haunting History Podcast, the podcast that reaches back into the past to the stories that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mysteries, and sometimes even the macabre. Join us as we travel back in time to the people and the lives behind the headlines. Listen as we research the stories that are still haunting those left behind, shining a new light on dark and cold cases. As the saying goes, someone out there knows something. Are you that someone? Welcome back to Hunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. Before we get started on our first story in our cold case series, I want to explain how we got here. Haley prefers um, the cold case stories and had been nagging me for a while to find one I wanted to do a story on. I wasn't really nagging you. Suggesting over and over again? Yep. Either way, I am always on the lookout for stories of missing people. And as you can imagine, there are a ton of them. I never know what I'm looking for when I start searching. It's just that something catches my eye either by the location or the dates of the missing person or the information on the victim themselves. I came across the story of Dorothy Scott. She went missing in 1980 and the location that she went missing was very familiar to me. Something struck me about her story. So in my research, I came across a crime blogger who seemed to have far more information than anyone else on the case. I won't get into that now. Her story will be the second one that we're doing in the cold case series. But because of her and some aspects of her story, I contacted the public information office at the Orange County Sheriff's Office to see if there was even the possibility of getting additional information on that case. When I first spoke to Jamie Blashaw, the Orange County Sheriff's public affairs manager. She said, although the cold case investigator was out on leave, uh, she believed that he would be interested in talking to me. It would take several months, but I finally got to speak to Bob Taft, the investigator with the Orange County Sheriff's who's in charge of the cold case division, who, by the way, I speak to, I think daily now. I either text him or talk to him at least once a day. During our conversations, I had asked if there was a chance that the Sheriff's Department would consider doing the series with me. I would submit my questions to him in advance and agree to listening approval before publishing in exchange to have them work with me and allow Bob to be on the podcast rather than answer questions off the record. Have they ever worked with podcasts before for cases? They approved one, a rather large podcast, and it was actually on um, Dorothy Scott. And then at the last minute, they backed out. So they haven't done one yet. This will be the first time that they're actually doing a podcast on one of those cases that they have. And what this means is that every episode I record with Bob for this case on Carrie Patterson, who the story is about today, or on the Dorothy Jane Scott, which will be our second case, I have to submit to the DA's office for approval before I can post it for public consumption. Bob, very open-minded to the thought that podcasts can and do help with generating leads in cold cases, agreed to climb the ladder and see if we could get approval. He believed, though, if we would do a case with less information first... It might grease the wheels for approval on a case like Dorothy, where there's a ton of information. So he submitted the request, which went all the way to the district attorney's office, and in the meantime, told me of another case he would like us to do. Out of the 150 plus cases on his desk, I asked him which case he would like me to do first, and he said there's one that's pretty close to my heart that we really have zero information on that could use some publicity because we believe someone out there knows something or someone saw something that day that they didn't think was important. Again, in over 150 files of cold cases on his desk, 150, and I mentioned that several times because to me it's a huge number, and like always, I'm shocked at how these cases find us, just like I was with Deborah Lynn. He went on to explain to me that there was a case from 1980 of a 15-year-old girl who went missing one day, and later a few of her remains were found in Brea, California. 
He said he had met the sister of the victim outside of work and made a connection that would lead him to look at the case and start following leads and information that he could even interview the people who had last seen Carrie, going so far that he met with them and had them walk with him the route they had took that day 40 years ago. He warned me that the sheriff's office doesn't have any hidden information that they might have in other cases and that there was no DNA that would help find the killer, even with today's technology. But said that the sister would probably be willing to speak to me and maybe generate some leads from people who saw something way back then and never came forward. He said the sister lives near you and I can give you her number so you can speak to her. He then told me her name, Michelle Ludwig. Wait, I said, Michelle Ludwig? I know her. She's a lawyer in Orange County. I asked, shocked, that out of the 150 cases he chose, that the that I actually knew the people involved with this one. He confirmed that I was right. It is That's her sister. And that's what the case was about. I was shocked. I mean, Michelle and I weren't old friends, but we definitely knew each other. Haley was friends with her daughters. They had all been to our home and Haley to theirs, right? Yeah, all throughout high school. So you knew all three of Michelle's daughters? Yeah. So you don't think that's so weird that out of 150 cases that he would choose one that we we know the people that were involved? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, the daughters didn't know their aunt. They She was only 15 and a half, but... They grew up with a mom who had a sister that was taken and was a victim of a murder. Yeah. I don't know. I it, Like every time I think about it, it kind of shocks me a little bit that how out of 150 cases he would choose that one. That we already know them. Yeah. Like yeah. we didn't even know that we knew anyone who had this kind of history or anything like this happened to them. I agreed right away to do this case, and I emailed Michelle right away, who immediately agreed to do it, too. I have emailed with Carrie and Michelle's mom, Crystal, who, by the way, declined to be interviewed on the episodes. She's not going to do any episodes with us? No, and we kind of went back and forth about it, because I had asked her originally, and she said no, and then um, after I spoke to Michelle, I asked her again, are you sure you don't want to talk to me? And she said she believes that Michelle would do a better job, but even more than that, she declined because basically she just can't anymore. For 40 years, her heart and soul have been dragged through the mud. The highs and lows of new and bad information is more than she can bear. And she just decided that she couldn't do it. It's And I feel bad because even when I'm emailing her and she's emailing me back, you can read in her words the despair and, and utter heartbreak. So, but you've been talking to her. She's just not going to record with She's us. not going to record. Yeah, I talked. I In fact, I was emailing with her this morning and she told she emailed me again this morning and said, you can ask whatever you want, whatever. I'll, I'll give you all the information that you need. But it's hard because I want to ask her certain things but I feel guilty at the same time like I know it's causing her pain and it's the same thing with Michelle like talking to Michelle like you want the answers and 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 I'm disconnected from it enough that I can read all the information and then ask all the questions and then I have questions but for them it's it's not a story it's it's her sister it's her daughter yeah and it's it's so hard I try and, and ask things in a I don't know what the word like soften the blow when I ask questions, but it still doesn't matter because I'm bringing up 40 years of no answers. No matter what I do, I'm causing some kind of pain. And that is, it's different than the Deborah Lynn series. Other than when I talked to her sisters, um, when I was talking to Jocelyn all the time, she didn't have a personal connection to her aunt other than wanting to know. This is different. It was Michelle and Carrie were only a couple years apart. Yeah. And Crystal's her mom. And being a mom myself, I can imagine, and thankfully I can only imagine it, the abs, just, there's really no words, the pain that's involved in that. 
She had started a memory book in the hopes that one day that she would be able to show Carrie herself until the day she got the call confirming her worst fear. She had searched for her daughter when no one else in law enforcement would help her. She hung handmade posters, which, by the way, I will have on our episode page, and followed every lead, even the ones that were a long shot. The police, believing that Carrie was a runaway, didn't do their job. And I have no... Typically, I try and see both sides, like the police officer's sides, and and especially... in when there's such strong feelings you have the the family has really strong feelings and then the police have very strong feelings they really did not do their job and i have no qualms about saying it with this the whole runaway situation with any missing kid just really drives me insane well they've changed a lot since 1980 no for sure but you just you can't just decide it's a runaway if none of their stuff's gone no there was no reason for them to think that she was a runaway crystal struggled to get them to take her seriously. And so we're doing the story not for entertainment purposes, but in the hope that we reach the ears of someone who suspected something and never said anything. The someone who saw something but didn't want to get involved. We're doing the story for Carrie. On December 27, 1980, a worker at the Union Oil Field in Brea, California, specifically in Tonner Canyon, came across a human skull located on flat ground in the middle of an oil field about 50 feet from an oil derrick rested what would break a mother's heart, send a sister on a lifelong search, and a cold case detective looking for answers. The life and death of Carrie Patterson has touched many lives, lives of people she never even had a chance to meet. A pretty and outgoing 15-year-old Carrie Patterson's family had just moved from Cerritos to Fullerton. She had attended her freshman year at Cerritos High School. She had been popular and athletic. She had been a Bobby Sox softball player. But in high school, things started to change. Her family became concerned with Carrie's safety. A newspaper article in the Orange County Register writer Keith Sharon goes on to say, and I'm quoting him exactly, She was really pretty and had a lot of boyfriends, her sister Michelle Ludwig said. She got hassled by a lot of girls. She was getting in fights. Someone even ripped a gold necklace off her. Girls didn't like her because she was getting attention from the boys, Ludwig said. The only reason we moved is because of her, Crystal, her mother said. It was out of pure worry on my part. I wanted to get her into Sunny Hills High. She never made it to Sunny Hills. We're going to take a break right here and listen to some promos from our favorite podcast. The two sets of friends immediately hit it off and just after midnight, Hannah, David and their friends decided to head out onto the strip. They walked past fruit stands and various bars before settling on the popular AC Beach Bar. David said he wanted some cigarettes, so headed out on his own. He made his way towards the main strip of bars and bought some cigarettes. CCTV tracks him heading back towards his room, alone. But David never made it back to his hotel room. And neither did Hannah. Red Rum is a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. We have appeared in top true crime shows on Apple Podcasts in 12 countries. Each episode tells the story of a different case. Search Red Rum True Crime wherever you get your podcasts. Hi friends, I'm Tierney and I'm Shelby and we're Dead Drunk. We've combined our love of alcohol and murder to make the perfect cocktail for a true crime podcast. 
We come to you each week with a new case, taking turns telling terrifying tales and giving each other full body chills. From mispronouncing names, a man who matched the description of their suspect perfectly. And this man was Bruno Richard Hotman. Hotman. (laughs) Right? How would I know? I'm not looking at it. Hotman. (laughs) (laughs) To getting wildly off topic. Watkins met Caruth at a strip club in Charlotte where Watkins worked. Was he like a bouncer or was he a stripper? Oh, It doesn't say, but I'm going to (laughs) assume. This hit man is just like. (laughs) I mean, I think he's jump on it. (laughs) We try our best to make each episode go down just as easy as the cocktails they inspire. So are you ready for the case? Drink Drink up, up, dead junkies. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. On June 26, 1980, Crystal told her daughters that they had to stay home and wait for a piece of furniture to be delivered. Carrie stayed home until about noon watching soap operas with her sister, then told her that she was going to get ice cream. She headed off on foot for the ice cream castle located near her new home. The plan was to meet up with some friends that she knew from her old house and that had also moved to the area. Two of those friends, boys that Carrie knew from Cerritos, were the ones that Bob Taft met with and walked the route they took that day. The police don't think of the boys as suspects. They are part of this story because they were the last ones to see Carrie alive, but we'll go more into them later. Carrie told her friends that she had to go home because she wanted to wash her shoes, a pair of white vans. She said she might go to the local horse stables later in the day. When we went and walked the route ourselves with Bob and um, we took a medium with us, which, again, you'll hear more about later. I can see how her shoes had gotten dirty because, like, when we were walking there, there was that big, huge dirt path that was there even back in 1980. So she had cut through there where... Because that was all being built up at the time. Yeah. Her shoes would have gotten dirty. Well, it's built up now, but it's still kind of rural. It's, yeah. Like, it's... And I really... I hate having dirty white shoes. I know. I wonder... <laughs> I, like, can almost feel how she feels because vans in 1980 were such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And she had white slip-on vans is what I read in one of the articles that it would bug you that they got dirty. Oh, yeah. Like I would not be able to go somewhere else later in the day and wear those shoes dirty. Right. So yeah. she told her friends she had to go home and clean her shoes. And I, having been to that area ourselves, I can see how that could have happened yeah when patterson left the ice cream shop she rode home on the handlebars of one of the boys bicycles the three boys told the police that they dropped her off at the corner and that's where her trail went cold carrie never made it home her mom having called the house found out around three that carrie had ignored her wishes and left the house at five when carrie still wasn't home the anger she initially felt turned to fear and worry. She started searching, calling all of Carrie's friends and ultimately driving around looking for her daughter. And in one article I read, the father, he was even went to the horse stalls and was like moving dirt and piles of hay and finally gave up because what he feared that he would find. Mm-hmm. I got that pain. I can't even imagine. She called the Fullerton PD, who initially thought she had run away, but her mother knew differently. Not only was it very unlikely and not her daughter's character, she also had left all her money at home. She also had left a suitcase packed for a trip she was taking in just a few days with a friend to the mountains. She didn't run away. Her mom was certain of that. But getting the police to believe her was a whole nother story. Crystal wanted to talk to the boys that had last been seen with Carrie, but the police discouraged it. Listening to that piece of advice is something Carrie's mom regrets with all her heart. 
She believes that she would have known just by looking in their eyes if they had anything to do with her daughter's disappearance. The police back then and even now do not believe that the boys had anything to do with what happened to Carrie. But as a mother, you can understand what it feels like to have that rock unturned. She was out turning every rock she could find, following every lead, any tiny piece of information she got. The boys, one of them, which has died since then, I think in an accident in the early 90s or 2000s, have never agreed to speak to Crystal or Michelle. And I understand that they almost did one time and then backed out at the last minute. I mean, I get it. You get why they haven't talked to her? Yeah, I mean, guilty or not. But I mean, it's when you're 15 and you're young and you're trying to be They were even younger. They were only 13 at the time. And she was 15. 13 or 14. She was 15. And the parents did. They shielded the shielded the boys from Crystal. I, I mean, think that's probably normal. I guess, but as an adult, I think I would want to clear my name. Maybe, but I think it could probably was traumatizing and sad for them too. No, friend. I agree. I agree, and I'll be the first one to admit that Crystal is a very strong personality. She's very clear and concise. I mean, she's really smart. She became a lawyer too, and I think that maybe they intimidated her a little bit or they were intimidated by her a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I guess I, I guess I do understand why they were just the last people to have seen her. If that's true. I mean, they were never even considered suspects even way back then, but I can see where Michelle and Crystal don't understand why they won't talk to them. Well, yeah. Cause it's frustrating. Yeah. I but. think, and we've reached out to them. I've reached out to them and Bob has reached out to them. And offered them to even just talk to me and and say what happened that day. But they have been super cooperative with Bob and the police department. They were cooperative, yes, definitely. I want to say back then and now. Back then they were cooperative with the police, and they were cooperative. I mean, they legitimately walked the mile and a half or whatever with Bob and recounted the story forty years later. Yeah. So yes, they were. They've been very cooperative. I wish they would talk to us. I wish they would talk to Crystal. I wish they would let. Just that one piece of what she feels that she never got done. I wish she could at least have that kind of closure. Does that, I mean, is that bad that I'm more? No. I I feel like with all the things that she doesn't have closure on, I feel like this is one tiny piece that someone could help her have closure on. Yeah. In one of the emails that Crystal sent me, she told me of what had happened. I mean, her daughter went missing on June 26th, right? She was still looking and I found some articles dated in July and some in August. And I asked her what the police were doing. Like why? I, I understand she was frustrated because they were calling her a run, runaway. But she I recounted this story for me. I'm just going to read it directly, the email that she sent me. At one point, they sent a couple of officers over to take me to a bowling alley where there was a reported sighting of Carrie. We went inside, sat at the bar area, and they told me to order a drink and relax. Then they drove me home. They were just trying to placate me. It was a shit show from the start, excuse my language, but I'm still angry at them because I feel if they had jumped on this the way they should have, she might still be alive. So she was calling every day. like She was pestering the police like any mom would do. Right. And they kept trying to like soothe her. Oh, she's just a runaway. She's just a runaway. And picked her up and took her to, just told her to order a drink. Yeah, it's weird. It's disrespectful. They did not take her, her or her daughter's case seriously. No, because they thought it was one way and that's just And it. I don't think that it would be like that now. I mean, I hope to God it wouldn't be like that now. Since the police weren't going to help, Crystal plunged into her own search for her daughter. She printed and hung the posters she made, tracked down leads, even listened to a psychic. And when she's a woman after your own heart, when she talked to the psychics to keep things straight, she started like a spreadsheet. <laughs> to figure out like to make sure she was keeping everything yeah. straight but 
she said that it was, she was talking to so many people. She was starting to doubt her own sanity. Like in one time, um, in, I want to say it was a mall. I read an article that she was hanging posters and she saw who she thought was Carrie and like ran after her and it wasn't her. Yeah. So she started to doubt her own sanity at the time. And they didn't just take Carrie's lives. They kind of took her mom's too. You know what I mean? Yeah. She searched and searched for six months. Then one day she picked up a newspaper her father had left laying on the couch, trying to distract herself. And this is what she wrote to me. She thumbed through pages and found an article that would lead to answers. Soul-crushing, heartbreaking answers. And this is what she wrote. For some reason, I started thumbing through the pages, which I never had time to do. At about the third page in, at the bottom of the page, was a tiny article that said, Bones Found. So I read it and it said something like, the bones of a female Hispanic were found in Tonner Canyon. They said the height and weight, which matched Carrie, and said the bones had been there from six months to two years. She had been missing six months and one day from that time. Their article was weird to me. How would they know it was a Hispanic female from a skull and other bones? Could it be Carrie? They found a skull. Carrie had just had four root canals on, the back, on her back teeth because she was sneaking candy at school and neglecting to brush properly. The dental procedure was only half finished. The permanent crowns had not been put on yet, so the temps may have come off and appeared that she had rotten teeth. I was grasping at straws, but I cut the article out and put it in my wallet. And then the picture of the article is going to be on our episode web page too. She said, I carried it around for a while. I talked to my friends about it, etc. And since the police had not called me about the bones that matched my daughter, I decided to call them. When I did call, I said, I found this article in the paper about a young girl's bones they said they found in Tonner Canyon and wondered if it could possibly be Carrie. The person that I was speaking to was Detective Nava, and she said, I don't know, Mrs. Patterson. Why don't you call the coroner's office and find out? Sounds nice. Right? And helpful. I want to know. With, I'm going to actually look at this detective because, like, what, what the actual fuck? <laughs> she goes on to say, so I called the coroner's office and got a nice young guy who was very interested. He asked where Carrie's dental records were. I told him I had given them to the Fullerton PD. The Fullerton PD couldn't find them, so he called me back and asked me where her dentist was. I gave him the name and address, and he took the x-rays of the skull directly to her dentist, and it was a perfect match. So the guys, the guy in the coroner's office like went above and beyond since the police department couldn't find the records that Crystal had given them. He actually drove to the dentist's office with the x-rays. Yeah. As it turns out, her remains were at Cal State Fullerton in the Forensic Anthropology Lab, and they were going to be permanently donated to the school within the week that I called Divine Intervention. So she had not called that day. So she had to track it down herself. She had to. That's awful. She carried, um, she couldn't remember in the email um, how long she carried around that little article in her wallet. Mm -hmm. But when she sent me the pictures of the memory book, she had written notes on everything in the memory book. And she carried that in her wallet for almost three weeks before she called the police to ask if it was her daughter. Yeah. So she did everything herself. And as you can tell, there's not a lot of information on the case. She went to the ice cream parlor. The boys dropped her off and she was never found again. Well, because they said it was a runaway, so they didn't work that hard to figure it out. Right. And Bob's going to be able to answer some of the questions. There's um, a serial killer who actually mentioned Carrie's name in his trial that we'll talk about later. And we'll talk to Michelle. And I think we're going to talk to the Orange County Register writer who wrote the story on Carrie just last year. And see if we can get some more answers. But right now, there's not a lot of information to go on. 
The search for Carrie is ended, but the truth is far from found. Who did this to Carrie? Was she in the wrong place at the wrong time? Did someone who knew Carrie do this, or is it possible that Carrie is a victim of one of the serial killers who were active in 1980? The search for Carrie's killer is still going. If you or anyone you know have information about Carrie Patterson's disappearance, please call Bob Taft at the Orange County Sheriff's Department at 714-647-7045.